Good morning, men. As we uh, get ready to get started this morning, I know some of you had a long weekend and it was probably tough to get up this morning. And then others of you uh, didn't even know there was a weekend. And so it's still tough for you to get up this morning. As we jump in this morning, I'm going to start in, in our uh, prayer series here. And I want us to go to First uh, Thessalonians. And you'll be familiar with this scripture, chapter 5. And I'm going to start here with verse 16. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be joyful always, which all of us can apply that, right? Not really. You can't without the second part of this, where he says pray continually. To pray continually will help you become joyful always. And even in your situation, in your circumstances, there is no doubt that uh, the Apostle Paul had had far worse, and yet he could write this to a church and say, hey, guys, this is how we ought to live. This is what it ought to look like. Now, to pray continually is where I'm going to be today because praying continually is very important for us as we walk through this journey called life. And you already know that, but uh, let's, let's talk just for a moment about what this looks like in our own lives. See, the, the big idea for this message is when all else fails, <coughs> throw a Hail Mary. All right? Now, I'm saying that jokingly, and you may have grown up Catholic, and I'm not trying to pick on the Catholics, but I will. Uh, as, we, as we talk about throwing a Hail Mary, you know, Roger Staubach, some of you remember. Uh, by the way, he was Roman Catholic, I think. Uh, he said regarding his touchdown pass to Drew Pearson in the 1975 playoff game, which I don't remember, but uh, against the Vikings, he said, I closed my eyes and I said a Hail Mary. All right. But I do remember this one, uh, the miracle in Miami. Any of you remember that pass? Now, I remember this one. And I, as a matter of fact, my kids know this one just based upon uh, they show it during the college football season so much. But this was the Doug Flutie pass. And uh, some of y'all don't even know who Doug Flutie is, but Doug Flutie, uh, he was with Boston College. They beat Miami in 1984. Uh, if you remember, he dropped back through a 63-yard bomb, last play of the ball game, right into the end zone, and they wound up catching it and winning the game. And because of what Roger Staubach turned that, he turned it a Hail Mary that just kind of kind of stuck. And so the same thing with Doug Flutie. Uh, he threw a Hail Mary, and some of us pray that way. We throw these Hail Marys, if you will. Now, let me say this. When you have nothing else to do, then that's what you do. You throw it deep and you pray, right? God, I need you to be at the other end of this prayer. I need you to, to definitely rescue me in all of this. And a lot of believers understand something like this. They, they, they only pray when they have no other option. So the Apostle Paul says, wait, your option is to pray continually. But what happens is until we run out of options, sometimes we don't pray. Or maybe we have routine prayers that, that at mealtimes or on a Sunday. But when it comes to actually seeking God with desperation, they only do it when there's nothing else to do. And even then, we may not do it. So, when they have exhausted all of their human wisdom, when they have worked through every possible strategy and they are at the end of their rope, they close their eyes, throw it deep, and hope something good happens. But it but this is a mistake, and I'll tell you why. All right, it's because the whole Christian life is supposed to be one of desperation. Now, I'm going to unpack this, and, 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 and this is really the spiritual big idea, is that our lives should be lives of desperation. And because they're lives of desperation, they ought to be spent in prayer. 
It's the truth. We live in a world that is in chaos. We live in a world that is, is full of all kinds of, of evil. And we are trying to win people for the sake of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we should live in a state somewhat of desperation. Now, desperation does not mean that we are without hope. Desperation simply means that, that we understand Jesus' words when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are desperate for God's presence and, we're, and for his power so that we will bear fruit. See, I love this, Corey Ten Boom. Um, most of y'all know Holocaust survivor uh, wrote The Hiding Place. One of the things she says in there, she says, prayer is supposed to be the steering wheel, not the spare tire. And I like that. Prayer is supposed to be the steering wheel, not the spare tire. The early church seemed to recognize their desperation for God. They were desperate. They had no great human resources. They weren't influential, so to speak. They weren't really strategic. They didn't have uh, great leaders outside of the disciples themselves who were very good leaders. But outside of them, they, they just basically had to, had to win the nations. They were desperate for the Spirit of God to work. They prayed for God's power in order to speak the word with boldness in the face of oppositions. In, you, in the face of opposition, Acts chapter 4. You can go read about that. In Acts chapter 6, I'll just take you through Acts real quick. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles said that they must be devoted to prayer. So the church selected some good men to care for the widows in order to free them up to do so. So they, they were supposed to spend their time in word and in prayer. The church prayed for Peter's release from prison, and it happened in Acts chapter 12. What was essential for the early church has become supplemental for the contemporary church. And let me say that again. What was essential for the early church has become supplemental for the contemporary church. Man, I say this all the time, but we're not looking for the sage anymore. We're looking for the expert. We're looking for that person who's been trained appropriately through all the leadership classes. We're looking for that theological expert who's been to seminary, has a master's of divinity, hopefully a doctorate of divinity. And it's not that those things are wrong, but what happens is we look for those to supplement what God intended for each and every one of us that point of desperation understanding that we walk in this world and we walk in this life as desperate men for god and for his will to be done in our lives this is why jesus stated as an example father if it be thy will remove this cup from me but not my will but thine be done he's showing us that we are to be desperate for his will to be done in this short thing that we call life why is this? Why are we desperate? Well, I'm sure we could have a, a list of reasons. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, I'll just, I'll just tell you um, why we should be desperate for God. Because when you think about everything that Jesus has done for us and when the call that's on our life, when we think about how God's adopted us, when he's redeemed us, when he's forgiven us through Christ, when he sealed us in the spirit, the father brought us from death to life. He raised us in Christ, with Christ, to be seated with Christ, to be a part of his church then look, I don't know why we would not be desperate, not just for ourselves, but desperate for others. That we would not have a passion for others. Let me ask you this. Are you so concerned about someone else's salvation that you spend more time in prayer for them than you do watching commercials? I'm not even talking about watching TV. I'm talking about watching commercials, right? We live in a contemporary time where today the contemporary church is saying all these other things are important, whereas you study the early church, the early church said, hey, here's what we need to devote ourselves to is prayer and pray continuously. We've got to have the power of God outside the power of God. There is no power in man. 
And that's just the truth, men. I mean, yeah, men rise to power and they fall and this type of thing. But I'm talking about spiritual power. Outside of God, there is no spiritual power. So go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul again. We talked about the church at Thessalonica. Now we're going to talk about the church at Ephesus for just a moment. I've got a lot of ground to cover and I'm moving quickly. So stay with me. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Man, that happened all night long. See, you got somebody to pray for right there. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So right here he's saying, hey, in the early church, you got to have love that surpasses knowledge. Everybody's after knowledge, but knowledge is nothing without love. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And the Apostle Paul was very good about praying for the next generation, praying for those who, who are in the church and praying for their generations to come. So let me say this about being desperate for Christ. Just looking at this scripture, desperation begins with a humble spirit. Desperation will always begin with a humble spirit. And, and here's why. Because God opposes who? The proud. And he gives grace to the humble. And, and we don't even realize how prideful we've become. If you are an American citizen, citizen, then you believe, or that you've been taught to believe, that we should pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. And what we say is that's for all man. So that we should have the opportunity to pursue at least those three things within this great nation. That's a great thing, right, to put out there. Our forefathers put it out there. But what happens is, is it can create the entitlement type person. And this person that's entitled, feels like they're entitled to these things, it becomes dangerous because entitlement will put you at a place of complacency. And complacency will lead to a place of inactivity. That's just a formula that actually, as you look throughout history, even church history, this tends to play out. I mean, the early church, all the way up through the third uh, and fourth century, was really hungry and humble before God. But as they, as they moved on, it became a business. It became uh, a, a way to accumulate more land, to accumulate more power, to have influence within the Roman government as well. And it continued to grow. And finally, in the 16th century, somebody stood up and said, enough's enough. This thing has become so corrupt, right? They had become not just complacent, but now they were inactive in their faith. And so people were paying for prayers. I mean, this, this was a common practice, uh, in the early Catholic Church. So if you wanted to be blessed, hey, let me pray God's blessing upon you. If you wanted me to pray someone out of purgatory, then give me more money and I'll help pray someone out of purgatory. Guys, this, this becomes dangerous because ultimately the bottom line, the underlying thing in someone's heart is, is that pride. When we get to a place of entitlement, we come to a place of pride. And entitlement prayers sound like this, Lord, I sure would like to have that new truck. Woo. God, I told you I was going to pray about every decision I make in this life. 
and we look like the rich young ruler right the rich young ruler comes to jesus and he says hey uh what do i need to do you know uh, i'm a pretty good fellow and jesus said well okay uh, keep the commandments well i've already kept the commandments I've, I've done all that and he said okay go sell what you have and give to the poor and the scripture said he walked away what sad here's why because he was entitled but wait a minute i'm a good man i'm a good person i took care of it life liberty and the pursuit of happiness shouldn't that be a part of me there's no humility in that and god knows that desperation comes from a humble spirit when we're desperate for god this is what it means we understand who we are and we understand who he is and we also understand who who we are not and who he is and that keeps us in a humble spirit the first thing to notice here in in ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 is notice what paul says he says for this reason i bow my knees before the father now kneeling was not common for the jews so when paul says hey i'm gonna bow myself before the father he's telling the jews i do something that you don't and pay attention to this it's not common i mean the typical position was one of standing and and it's just like what you see at the wailing wall today you don't see people kneeling in front of the wailing wall what do you you, you have them putting their prayers into the wall standing so paul says look for this reason i bow all the way to the point of my knees i humble myself see desperation is humility whenever someone is kneeling in prayer in the bible they're indicating deep humility and deep emotion and man i'm triggering on something now y'all stay with me this is not in my notes but uh daniel 9 uh thinking of daniel just i don't know why this is pinging on me but daniel goes before the lord in daniel chapter 9 there's a famous prayer there you can go read it he's praying on behalf of the nation and and it's a prophetic prayer and thing. Daniel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah and Lamentations, and Daniel would have been a child, so he would have known the prophet. Daniel was not a prophet. Daniel was uh, Daniel was just a statesman. All right, that's that's really what Daniel was. And so uh, the reason I point to Daniel is because something he understood was kneeling before God and listening and knowing who God was and what God was saying. And it's very important that, that we see this. I, I think maybe I'm pinging on Daniel just because to know that he's a statesman, he's not a preacher, he's not a pastor, he's, he's a person who, who just found favor. Matter of fact, the Babylonian exile, he was one of them that was exiled out of that, if you remember. And Jeremiah was the one giving the big warning. Hey, you just as well let them in, we're overtaken already anyway, right? Jeremiah is not a fun book to read, neither is Lamentations for that matter. But it, it's, it's, it's here that we see men who are devoted to God humbling themselves, not just for themselves, but for who? For the nation. For the nation. And here the Apostle Paul's doing it for the church. When is the last time we found ourselves on the knees, on our knees for the church? Jesus, win the nation through the church. See, whenever someone is kneeling in prayer in the Bible, they're indicating a deep humility and a deep emotion before God. Now, don't hear this i don't want to suggest that this is the only posture of prayer and men I, I started off with what first thessalonians chapter 5 for a reason pray continuously if you are in prayer continuously that does not mean that you're going to walk around on your knees all right you're going to wear when i was a kid in the 70s and 80s we wore the knees out of our pants and so our our parents what they would do is they would get these patches y'all remember them 
and they would sew the, and my mom always sewed patches, and, and, and my mom didn't give me like patches like you got. You got like a cool patch that matched your jean. My, my mom would buy the patches that were uh, Bugs Bunny and the Road Runner, you know, and I'm 13 running around with Bugs Bunny and Road Runner on my knees. But we don't, we don't wear our knees out that way, right? It is important. Listen, men, it is important to watch your posture before God. Because a lot of times your posture before God will explain to you whether you're humble or you're pride or you're prideful. There should be times that we find ourselves literally on our knees. Battles are won not as much for men standing but men kneeling. One day you'll have the opportunity to talk to George Washington and about all the battles that he won, about the crazy stories that are told about him that one day he a man had a a fair shot at George Washington and shot at him and hit him in the buckle should have should have hit him uh, I mean another inch higher hit him in the gut and he would have been gut shot it's amazing stories like that but George Washington found himself on his knees not for himself but for a nation right so I don't want to suggest that the only posture for prayer is on your knees but kneeling is a way of humbling ourselves before the Almighty God. We have people pray in all types of postures within the Bible, no doubt. I mean, I believe in prayer walking. I believe we, where we walk, where we go, where our feet trot. I mean, we're supposed to have the shoes of the gospel on. So where we walk and where we step, we ought to be in tune with what the Spirit of God is saying at all times. And when you reflect on the Father's grace, in what he's done for us, as I said earlier, how he's adopted us, how he's redeemed us, how he's forgiven us through Christ, and he sealed us with his spirit, then, then what that should do is bring us to a place not of pride, but a place of humbleness and humility. The second point I have, and I only have three this morning, the second point I have is our desperation strengthens the inner man. When you are desperate for God and you are desperate for others and you're desperate for the church and you're desperate for a nation, what happens is eventually your inner man is strengthened. No longer are your prayers just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, but your prayers become give them, show them, open their eyes that they may see. Strengthens the inner man, and I believe this is what Paul's talking about right here in this prayer. Look, uh, many of you want to break sin in your life. We're talking to men here this morning, and men, there are a lot of habitual sins that want to take our lives. You know this. I mean, it, it can be a habitual sin of, of, from simple, something as simple as overeating, or it can be a habitual sin all the way over here to, to um, wanting to look at pornography and do the things thereof with it. There are all kinds of habitual sins. And what happens to men is we become defeated because, look, we are so prideful that we're trying to satisfy a brief human desire that's here today and gone tomorrow. And we, we're not looking like Paul preached here for the next generation and the next generation when he says, um, and to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We, we look at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that that's just for me. But if we live that way, it'll never be here for the next generation. Look, if you want to break sin in your life, your inner man has to be strengthened. I'm not saying you will not sin. I mean, John says it just plainly. He says, he who says he is without sin is a liar. 
But John does not say that he is a sinner saved by grace. There's a big difference here. He says, I sin, but I'm not a sinner. He doesn't put it in those terms, but if we identify more with being a sinner than we do as a child of God, how will we ever break the sin in our life? Is the blood of Jesus ever that powerful in your life? Well, that means your inner man has to be worked upon. See, besetting sin or habitual sin is broken really when we humble ourselves before the Lord and allow Him to build us up from the inside out. Paul has given an example of how this works. Verse 16 and 17. Notice what he says. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Power in your spirit connected in your most inner being brings power to the outer man. This is where Paul's going with this. Asking God to fill and strengthen the believers in the inner man. This is where we need strength and power on the inside. This is how we fight sin, proclaim the gospel with courage, and love people the way Christ has loved us. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says this. Paul says the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed. So every day that the outside is looking worse, every time I go to the VA hospital and say, hey, uh, I've got another spot here, and I've got another spot here, and this is showing up on my arm, and they say, okay, you got to go down to the dermatology clinic. The outside is wasting away, but every time that happens, my inner man should be getting stronger day by day. And we look forward to those glorious riches that the Apostle Paul's talking about here. Our bodies may be wearing out, but while our bodies are weakening, our inner man should be strengthening should be being renewed in the spirit. Our culture places all the importance on the outer person. And this is so dangerous, but the bigger issue is the inner person. Right? You know this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. I, I mean, God looks upon not the outside or outward appearance, but on the inward or inner man, right? He's talking about, of course, um, David. And so uh, Proverbs 31, 30, same thing there. When I was in high school uh, and college, we liked to go spotlighting for coyotes. I figured I'd be losing you about this time, so I put a little story in here for you. All right, but uh, we liked to go spotlighting for coyotes. That's what we would do. I would come in on a Friday night, and uh, a couple of my buddies, and we would jump in an old Jeep Wagoneer that my dad had out on the farm. I mean, it was, it was an old one. The, the headliner would fall in. Matter of fact, we finally wound up tearing the headliner out, and we would hang out the windows, and when we jumped a coyote, we would just take off after a coyote, and they'd be hanging out shooting, and you know, we try to shoot them with pistols. We try to shoot them with shotgun. We, whatever we had, I mean, we put holes through the car. It, it didn't matter. You know, we just out there chasing, and it was radical, and it was wild. But the funny thing about that Jeep Wagoneer was this. The gas gauge always stayed on full. And when I would come in for a weekend, I never knew how much gas was in the Wagoneer. I just went out there and pumped the gas until it started and then said, hey, guys, let's go. And one night, we were as far away as we ever hunted. And sure enough, if we didn't run out of gas. And the deal is, we had to do what? We had to walk all the way home. It was probably seven, eight miles to the house. And I got in like the next morning. It was ridiculous. What does that have to do with this message? Well, what it says on the outside was not what's going on on the inside. And some of us have run out of gas in our inner man. And we, we walk around and say, oh, that's good. How are you doing? Oh, that's great. 
thanks man i appreciate it da, 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 da. And let's be honest i mean when you're tapped on and tapped on and tapped on and tapped on eventually you can run out and so paul is saying here hey i i want you to pray in such a way where god has time to fill up your inner man so what it says on the outside is truly what's going on in the inside <clears throat> the third one desperation forces us to depend upon him fully when you are desperate for God, this is what you're saying. I can't do this on my own. I'm not going to win this in my own strength. There's, there's, let's be, we can take this all the way over into forgiveness. Now, we've been working on the Lord's Prayer here over the past few weeks, but when you look at the, the Lord's Prayer, there's something in there that really bothers me. He says to forgive those who trespassed against us, right? And, and when we forgive those who've trespassed against us, men, it, it, that, that, that's very difficult to do. I mean, we have to depend upon him because sometimes what God, we would put it this way, what God has allowed to happen to us, we, we and, and, and whether we say he allowed or whether we say Satan got through and this is what happened, forgiveness is a difficult place to be and it's a difficult place to wind up at times. But our desperation says we can't do it. So our forgiveness has to be done in his strength and not in the strength of our own. And this happens from the inner man. So here's the thing. God, ask, learn to ask God to strengthen you in your inner man. See, by the time you get to verse, uh, in verses 16 through 19, and then they really peak in verse 20, he says this. <clears throat> that we are to be strengthened with power, rooted and grounded in love, strengthened beyond comprehension, which is God's love, verse 18, to know the love of Christ, filled with the fullness of God, according to the power at work within us. Now, this is a prayer, and he says, pray this, pray it desperately. And here's, here's what happens when we're strengthened in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So in this petition, verse 16 and 17, these two clearly belong together. Paul uses the language of the inner man in verse 16, and then he uses the language of the heart in verse 17. He uses the language of the strength of the Spirit and then the indwelling of Christ. Now, let me say this. He's using two terms for the same thing. It's not different here, all right? He's just trying to get his point across. Your inner man is your heart. Well, I thought I asked Jesus to come into my heart. Okay, you may have. Is your heart full? Is your inner man full? Do you have the strength of the Spirit? Do you have the indwelling of Christ? And I'll talk about indwelling here in just a minute. Paul doesn't intend to separate the second indwelling or the second and third person of the Trinity. Let me say that. He doesn't intend to, to separate the second and third person of the Trinity. To speak of the indwelling of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit is to speak of the same thing. By the way, that comes from Stott. Uh, he's a scholar, and I was just reading what he had on prayer. Christ dwells in our hearts by the Spirit. It is indeed part of the mystery that Christ dwells in believers, not in a tabernacle or a temple. You might ask, I thought Christ was already in my heart as a Christian. Yes, he is, John 14, 15. But Paul is speaking about something more than just Christ dwelling in your heart. Paul is talking about Christ ruling in your heart. So this word indwell, this, this Greek word dwell in your heart, men, this is very important. This means that he goes into every room. He goes in the, 
man, this is in, in my notes, but if you really want me to impress you, this is what it means. That God goes, He indwells the right atrium, the tricuspid valve, the right ventricle, out the pulmonary arteries, back in through the pulmonary vein, into the left ventricle, down through the bicuspid valve, into the left ventricle. Every area of your heart. I remember that from science years ago. Every area of your heart, God indwells. The Greek there means to fill and fill completely. For it to completely be full. So, yes, you may have, have Christ in your heart, all right, but does he rule your heart? Does what on the outside match what's going on on the inside? He could use the word that means to inhabit, but the Apostle Paul didn't say Christ inhabits your heart. This is amazing to me. Because to inhabit means that he picks a spot and he lives there. But it says that he indwells it. Every single area of your heart, he indwells. So, and, and, and by the way, this word also means to settle down deep. It carries the idea of a permanent resident, not a short-lived resident. It is deep. It fills the crevices, the dark places, and it brings light to them. And when we humble ourselves and pray, and earnestly pray in worship, then God rules. And, and, and uh, the Apostle Paul said, let the peace of God do what? Rule your heart. Those are the Apostle Paul's words. Let the peace of God rule your heart. In, uh, and in order for that to happen, he's got to indwell down deep, down deep in your heart. And this is a place where our addictions are broken. This is the place where people are set free. This is the place where we begin to walk by the Spirit and not of the flesh. So men, my challenge to you today is simply this. Are you desperate? in your prayers we should be we should be my, my grandmother uh, she used to always uh, pray for the lost and, and she when we were at my grandmother's house she always wanted to pray I didn't really like to pray with my grandmother because she's kind of weird in her prayers you know I didn't know where she was going sometimes and I say that jokingly I, I love I love my grandmother so dearly and and, and she would start praying. Oh, she'd cry, cry, but she'd start crying at the end of her prayers over the lost. She was desperate for the lost people, anyone lost. I mean, she knew names, and then when she ran out of names, she just prayed over everybody, anywhere, neighbors, across the street, whoever was lost. She was desperate for them to come to Jesus. How desperate are our prayers today? Do we throw Hail Marys? Father God, I thank you for these men as we go through our questions, Lord. Uh, help us to learn what it is to be desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen.